Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. Over the past decade, dozens of indigenous women and girls from the Crow and Northern Cheyenne nations have been murdered or gone missing in Bighorn County, Montana. The ongoing epidemic is the subject of Murder in Bighorn, a new three-part docuseries streaming now on Showtime. In the docuseries, Native families, advocates, and a journalist unravel a violent crisis set in motion almost 200 years ago during colonization. One Native woman says, this is the most dangerous place for Native women in the country. Here is the trailer for Murder in Bighorn. The darkness that has happened is this black cloud, the vapor, that energy just consumes your whole tribe. Since colonization, Native women have been targeted. Multiple families grieving over teenage girls. There's so many of them. You can get killed real easily around here. I know something happened to her out there. I hear this little small voice say, Come find me, Dad. Someone knows what happened. That someone is still walking around here. As of right now, we don't have a crime. She deserves justice. It's very clear that there's foul play involved. They told us don't go back there. And I'm wondering why. They're trying to make it out that it's a white boogeyman killing people. Our girls don't just die. Somebody abducted her. This is the most dangerous place for Native women in the country. I don't think the issue's real. They can take our women and nothing will happen. We're just supposed to stay in the back and be a good Indian. That is the trailer for Murder in Bighorn, a new three-part docu-series about the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls with a focus on Montana. It is now streaming on Showtime. Joining us is Ivan McDonald, a producer of Murder in Bighorn. Ivan McDonald is an enrolled member of the Blackfeet Tribe of Northern Montana. Ivan and his sister Ivy have gained the trust of families who want their stories to be told. Their first film was When They Were Here, which garnered national attention and put a spotlight on the movement. Their second short film, Blackfeet Boxing, Not Invisible, tells the story of a boxing gym on the Blackfeet Reservation that's teaching young girls self-defense while they live with the realities of violence against Native American women on reservations. Hi, Ivan. Thank you for joining us again. And really, congratulations to you and your team for making such an important and incredible docuseries. Thank you so much for having us back, Rose. I just realized I think it's almost three years to the day. (laughs) Wow. Time just goes by. Well, Ivan, I I hope you don't mind me starting off on a personal note, because this is these films and this issue is very, very personal for you. Your cousin was kidnapped and murdered on the Blackfeet Reservation in Browning, Montana, when she was just seven years old? Yeah, yeah. So actually how Ivy and I began this work um, was was this crisis was kind of, I mean, the crisis, this, the missing and murdered Indigenous woman movement has been going on since the 80s. I don't think a lot of people know that, you know, almost a 40-year-old movement and kind of beyond that. And um, when it kind of came to the national forefront a few years ago, it was right before that, Ivy and I were trying to make sense of our own family's connection, the connection to the crisis and what living with this legacy of violence means and um, interviewed our Uncle Kenny, who our cousin Monica still wrote, Monica Wells still smoking, was kidnapped and murdered on the Blackfeet Reservation in 1979 at the age of seven. And uh, we kind of juxtaposed that with the story of our cousin, Ashley Loring Heavy Runner went missing on the reservation in 2017 and hasn't been found yet. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you know, I think that these stories, there's a very personal connection. Wow. You know what, what I so appreciated about this series, they're about an hour each. And so you had the time to look at the history of colonization and how we got here. This didn't just happen. You all really go deep into the Indian Removal Act what happened to Native people when they were forced onto reservations? What happened to fa- entire families when children were taken from their families 
and put in these very abusive boarding schools? What happens when a child is abused and then sent back to their community? So can you just talk about that, what you wanted to convey by really going deep into that history? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think when Showtime approached us, they were very cognizant of using their platform to really tell probably the most in-depth, I guess, series on this topic. And um, as as we kind of progressed and developed the series, kind of really tried to build in these, all of these aspects of the crisis, because beyond sort of the legal jurisdictional issues, there's so many cultural, historical, um, as, and, and again, you know, legal as well, issues that kind of just have created this this perfect storm, which has led to this crisis, you know. I mean, the as you had mentioned in the um, in the beginning, you know, it's kind of this this 200 year history has been set in motion. But I would even go and say it goes even a little bit farther back. Some of the first documented accounts of sexual violence inflicted inflicted on indigenous women in the Americas um, come from some of the, the rich aristocrats and conquistadors that came with Christopher Columbus. And there's a really I consider the kind of the foundational text on this on this legacy of violence against indigenous woman is um, Muskogee Creek um, legal scholar Sarah Deer. Her book, Beginning and End of Rape, Confronting Sexual Violence in Indian Country, and she goes into this historical firsthand documents of, um, you know, these these Spanish aristocrats just inflecting violence on the Carib woman and kind of how they justified it as they were, you know, these women were kind of these sexual deviant, these Jezebels who deserved this violence to be inflicted on them. Fast forward 400 years and, you know, Indigenous women are still fighting against those tropes. Exactly. And if you really do your reading and learn about what actually happened, I mean, it's, it's so brutal. It's just, it's, it's, I always think of the word sadist when I read these things because the, the actions, the violence that people, colonizers, the violence uh, inflicted on the first peoples of this country was is beyond really most people's imagination. Yeah, you know, I think it's really this 400 or plus years of just a constant campaign of dehumanizing Indigenous people, which kind of brings us to this this current state and sort of these reverberations throughout history. Right. And I so appreciated. Lucy Simpson, the executive director of the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, and Luella Byrne, former general manager and editor of Bighorn County News. They play a very big role in the film, in the docuseries. And they also are so honest about what is really happening here. In addition to the intergenerational trauma that so many Native communities are dealing with, you know, that becomes internalized and then in some cases that results in native on native crime. And you, you don't really hear that talked about very much, Ivan. I mean, we know why, but I think it's such an important aspect to really flesh out. Oh, yeah. No, I think it's incredibly important. You know, as much as some research points that, um, you know, indigenous people might be one of the only, I think particularly indigenous women, I'm thinking of a national um Institute of Justice report from about 10 years ago, which kind of showed that Indigenous women, um, the highest rates, they may be one of the only groups where the rates of violence they experience are from non-Indigenous people. I think it's so important that the series went into just how much of this is a community issue and kind of a cultural issue and why it kind of lends itself to this this cloud of secrecy. It's kind of this continued aspect of, you know, kind of the legacy of of boarding schools where, you know, we would, our ancestors would go to these schools, just have levels of violence inflicted on themselves, come back to their communities and inflict their families and communities with this violence. Um, So, you know, I think that I really appreciated the aspect of that series, which kind of shows as much as painful as it is to acknowledge that, we're doing a lot of this to ourselves. I'm thinking of a few of the cases that my sister and I have worked with and researched over the last six or seven years. And I would probably say 
if not 60%, at least 50% of those, the individuals that are involved are Indigenous and not just Indigenous from the community and not, and again, not just from the community, parts of like family members. And so I think that the, as much as the series kind of presented that aspect of, you know, us inflicting this violence on ourselves, I really loved how it went into kind of the, the psych, you know, the psyche of why that, um, why why that is with regards to kind of the, the 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 legacy of historical trauma and just kind of how that violence has just been inflicted in us mm. i think it was luella Byrne, the former editor of bighorn county news or i'm sorry yeah county news who said this is the most dangerous place for native women in the country so for people who are not familiar with maybe Montana or this particular part of Montana, let's spend a little bit of time just talking about that for context. So it's Bighorn County, Montana. It's in South Montana. It sits right on the south end of the Montana-Wyoming border and goes all the way to just outside of Billings. And there's a major highway that goes right through the reservation. Can you just tell us more about this particular area of Montana? Yeah, yeah. So Bighorn County is in the southeastern part of um, Montana. I, I actually live about an hour from the Crow Reservation in Billings. And um, just as you had mentioned, you know, it's a thoroughway for I-90 when I-90 heads south into Wyoming, Denver. I think you can make it all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico with the I-90, with that I-90. Um, but yeah, you know, this is kind of this really most research, and I'm I'm pulling on some um, some research that I remember from the Sovereign Bodies Institute that they put out a few years ago, which said Montana, but Billings in particular, is like the fourth or fifth leading location for MMIW cases. And there's all of these different aspects. Of course, you have, <clears throat> of course, you have border racism with um, Billings and these kind of larger urban areas that are so close to the reservation, but you also have, you know, the aspect of the reservation. But then again, you know, you have this influx of these people who just kind of continuously, like the, if you, when you, when you go through the Crow Reservation, you realize it's literally just right across. It's like right off the interstate. Both sides of the community are just right off the interstate. So there's always this throwaway. But yeah, you know, I think that's kind of what, um, that's kind of the, I think the positionality I think of the of the reservation really kind of lends itself to some of the aspects of this crisis. And we also learned that in this particular area, sex trafficking is epidemic. We learn that women are sometimes taken out of the state or the country or they're enticed with free drugs and alcohol and then they're sold to men right right there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that was one of the cases that we really have followed, which is Shakaya Blue Harding, a young woman who um, went missing right here in Billings. Um, a lot of the signs point to that she was possibly, you know, sex trafficked. And there's been sightings of her in strip clubs in Phoenix and um you know, possible possible sightings in in relation to that of um, you know, sex work. And we um I think kind of understanding all the mechanisms of just kind of the vulnerabilities, I hate to say, of Indigenous women. Um, Indigenous women are definitely very vulnerable to the aspects of of sex trafficking. And, um, you know, I think a lot of the research does point to point to Indigenous women being one of the more vulnerable groups. What is the relationship like between Native and non-Native people in Bighorn County and beyond in Montana? Yeah, you know, I think with regards to Bighorn County, so the county seat is in Hardin, which is um, a Luella, a lot of the story Luella shows in there and the story of Kaysera, um takes place in Hardin and Hardin kind of has this this legacy or this reputation of something called a border town, which is largely a law, which is largely um, white non-Indigenous community, which is literally on the border of a reservation. And there's kind of all of this this legal cultural history of of what border towns are and what they kind of represent um but with regards to um this this specific this specific area you know that's kind of that's kind of the relationships are always kind of very very strained and strained kind of historically um so with with regards to the crow reservation there's like crow harden and then lame deer part of lame deer which is the northern cheyenne reservation which is on the um, very western corner of Bighorn County. And, 
you know, I would always say that relationships are always strained. I mean, relationships for just in general across the reservation or across the state are very strained. I mean, there was a state legislator recently, a white state state legislator recently who tried to was kind of he said he was toying with the idea of introducing legislation that would do away with the reservation system. And I think that there's some interesting dynamics here in Montana where Montana is, I think, one of maybe one of one of two. I think Alaska might be the other. Um, other states where indigenous people, Native American people are the second largest demographic after white. And so that there's a lot of this context and a lot of this conflict that can arise where, you know, you have these two largest demographics of people kind of competing for resources, access, um, I think particularly for indigenous people, justice. And I think what the what the series showed, one of the the, the undersheriff, um, you know, that kind of that kind of talking point from non-Indigenous, mainly white people is that, you know, this crisis isn't isn't real. This is something you guys are doing to yourselves. Why are you always, you know, pointing the finger finger at us or, you know, the government or the tribal government? And I think that's something the series tried to go into of why, you know, why these different these different groups of people clash and why, you know, this this crisis is ever present. Ivan McDonald is one of the producers of Murder in Bighorn. It is a new three-part docu-series streaming now on Showtime. It focuses on the dozens of Indigenous women and girls from the Crow and Northern Cheyenne nations who've been murdered or gone missing in Bighorn County, Montana. We meet so many Native families who are just fighting for basic answers also, of course, fighting for justice. We also meet advocates and a journalist who unravel a violent crisis set in motion hundreds of years ago during colonization. And I really hope you can see this docuseries. It's about three hours, and you can find the trailer and more information at yourcallradio.org. If you have any questions or comments for Ivan about the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, what it will take to stop this. We'd love to hear from you. The toll-free number is 866-798-8255, 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. Ivan, before we dive in and talk about specific stories, I wanted to talk to you about jurisdiction because you all did such a great job of really educating your audiences about how this works. So attorney Mary Catherine Nagel said that for a crime that is committed on tribal lands, federal law enforcement, the FBI, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs have jurisdiction. BIA officers would show up immediately, and then the FBI would be called in. But the BIA cannot exercise criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians when they commit crimes on tribal lands. Mary Catherine Nagel says our own government cannot protect us from any crime committed by a non-Indian. To figure out who has jurisdiction, you have to know if the perpetrator is Indian or non-Indian, where it was committed, and whether it was on tribal land. So can you just talk more about this? Because the jurisdiction issue is so important when we're talking about really solving these cases. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think jurisdiction and kind of the sovereignty of tribes is is so, so much of a, I think in most research shows, it's kind of such an incredible pillar or I guess totem for this, for this crisis and just the ways in which the justice legal jurisdictional system has been set up on reservations where we don't get justice and kind of as Mary Catherine, Mary Catherine said, so the federal government and um, some previous Supreme Court cases in the late 1800s kind of stripped tribes of all of the jurisdiction they had to prosecute violent crimes. And there's like seven violent crimes. It's like murder, stalking, sexual assault. Um, domestic violence. It's kind of these, these seven, these seven realms, if I remember correctly, of violent crimes. And that's, those are crimes and, and issues on reservations where we don't have jurisdiction over the, the jurisdiction is held within the federal government and particularly the Department of Justice. So say you have a non-Indigenous, a non-Indigenous person committed, commit an act of violence against an Indigenous person on a reservation. Oftentimes, tribal police, state police um, have no jurisdiction to 
arrest this person. And I think they, I think they have some jurisdiction of, of possibly to hold, but that's that might not even be in certain cases. But so you know, you have this aspect where someone, if someone commits a, a non-indigenous pers- person commits a, a crime on a reservation and they're not prosecuted um, or even even arrested, they can essentially go free. And there is some, there is some contextual historical cases where that is that has happened you know someone knowingly committed an act of violence the department of justice the department of justice declines to prosecute upwards of 75 percent of violent crimes that happens on reservations largely due to this jurisdictional issue and so you know you have tribes who have no jurisdiction and a lot of these these violent crimes even though most research shows that we're probably one of the groups most vulnerable to it they kind of have no recourse and you know there's been different fixes such as such as the violence against um a violence against women act where you know tribes have been given some small jurisdiction or sovereignty to um commit those who those who um inflict domestic violence but again that's such a small sliver sliver of the over, overall jurisdictional issues so you know that it's kind of i think i think i remember someone referring to it as a maze you know it's kind of a maze of legal issues that make up jurisdiction and you know even in, even with regards to tribes like you know say say an indigenous person commits an act of violence against another indigenous person due to the ways in which the legal system the legal system is set up they can often only prosecute someone for a year up to a year in a tribal tribal court and they can stack those up to three years so i can think of a specific case on my reservation the blackfeet where another another blackfeet person murdered another blackfeet person and due to the department of justice not picking up this case they were only able to sentence that person to i think it was like a year to three years and that person you know was essentially free and so you know that that's kind of this maze of jurisdiction which has exacerbated this crisis and you know i think that's something that a lot of advocates and um activists have said is like you know if you truly want to protect us give us back the power to prosecute these crimes in our own communities but it's something that i know that the department of justice still is very kind of deaf to Well, to that point, um, attorney Mary Catherine Nagel said the jurisdiction issue is one of the reasons why Bighorn County has one of the highest rates of MMIW in the U.S. today. Secretary Deb Holland became the first native secretary of the Department of the Interior ever as she began a missing and murdered unit at the department. But attorney Mary said even with this administration, we're basically told, no, we can't help you. There's nothing we can do. Yeah, yeah, you know, outside of giving tribes and, you know, their full sovereign power, because we're essentially only sovereign in name, um, you know, aside from giving us back that full jurisdiction, that this issue will just kind of be, you know, this 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 issue will kind of exist for time immemorial, just because, you know, if you're not able to accurately prosecute or investigate, prosecute, and um, deal with these these crimes that happen in your communities. It's like, what other recourse do you have? I mean, I can think of a few cases where just the jurisdiction was so messy, where this family, the BIA, of course, was the first or the first kind of um, first kind of point of contact, and they're like, okay, like you know, the BIA didn't essentially do anything for a year, and the family's like, okay, well, what other recourse do we have? They're like, oh, well, you know, we you guys could possibly request the FBI to take over the case, but then there's all of these jurisdictional issues when the BIA is transferring it to the FBI and kind of vice versa, and so you mm-hmm. can kind of understand of just why this this confusion and this just this injustice happens to these families. Just quickly before we go to break, one more question about jurisdiction. Uh, Montana Senator John Tester, a Democrat, has written the FBI about this, saying more needs to be done. He just announced that he is going to run for re-election. And so he's on Twitter asking people to send him money. Please retweet my photo. What should journalists be asking him? Because, again, we're talking about Bighorn County, Montana, where it's one of the most dangerous places to be a Native woman in the country. Yeah, you know, I think Senator Tester kind of definitely has an acute understanding of um, Native American issues just being such a long-term representative for the state. Um, And I think that's something that a lot of us have kind of pushed him on. You know, you have, you know, kind of provided great talking points to this crisis, but have you really pushed anything beyond that? You know, we've kind of have chatted about 
Um, and I know I've chatted about different things with with his office with regards to kind of the congruence of understanding that Indigenous communities need justice, but also kind of advocating for things that may be, um, you know, kind of in opposite or in, in, in conflict with getting that justice. So I think that's a big thing that um, Senator Tester, I think, will have to answer to, I think, with Indigenous communities as he runs for re-election is, you know, what exactly are we doing to address, you know, this crisis, but the, a lot of the, the crises that do exist in Indian country. And I know that's something that I think a lot of us will be pushing him on. And I know that there's a few bills right now in our in our state legislative session going on that are hoping to address the crisis. We're going to take a quick break. Ivan McDonald is one of the producers of Murder and Bighorn, a new three-part docu-series on Showtime featuring stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Montana. You can find out more about the docu-series and watch the trailer at yourcallradio.org. We'll be back after this. This is Your Call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Today, we are spending the hour with Ivan McDonald, one of the producers of Murder and Bighorn, a three-part docuseries on Showtime featuring stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Montana. Over the past decade, dozens of Indigenous women and girls from the Crow and Northern Cheyenne nations have been murdered or gone missing in Bighorn County. In the film, we meet several Native families, advocates, and a journalist who unravel this violent crisis set in motion hundreds of years ago during colonization. You know, Ivan, it is so powerful to hear families tell the stories of their loved ones, to tell the stories about how difficult it is to get answers to basic, basic questions. The sheriff's office will not meet with them, will not call them back. In one case, one girl was cremated without her family even knowing, and that goes against their cultural practices. Can you talk about, given that you and your sister Ivy have been at this for so many years, well, what is it like to gain the trust of these families and then become such a close part of their lives, given that they share so many details with you? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's been a um, kind of this process of just, you know, building kinship, you know, even outside of filmmaking, I worked for the Crow Indian Health Service when I was in grad school as a clinician, and um, sort of slowly began my kind of, you know, working relationship with the community even back then, and have kind of continued that over, over the years. And, you know, I think that with regards to the work Ivy and I try to do of collecting these oral histories from these families, a lot of it is, is building trust, support, relationships. Um, and, you know, so many of these families are often, you know, eager to tell their loved one's story because, you know, that they there is no other kind of recourse for justice. And, you know, I knew a lot of the families um, in the series, even before, even before we, you know, had started production on it. And so that was a really great kind of in, um, in for the, in for the, in for the program and the directors and producers um, aside from us. But, you know, I think that that's kind of the relationships we've been trying to build over these few years is just, kind of because you know I think we're kind of we've tried to meet them and understand that you know on the level of you know we're we're a family survivors of this crisis too and you know that there's kind of this relational relational aspects that I think the families where they they begin to trust you they understand you know we've we've had a gamut of you know media people and you know people reach out and like can you connect me with this family can you connect me with that family but it's always trying to understand of you know so many of since it's kind of like a hot topic so many of these people want kind of access to these families and you know it can be re-traumatizing telling their stories over and over and it's like how do you protect them protect them in that aspect but you know I think it's I think being that community aspect and kind of that that um being, you know, kind of accepted in the community, I think has led, led a lot to the success of the series. We talked about the jurisdiction issues, but I wonder what else you can tell us about why it is so hard for family after family to get answers to basic questions. I mean, in some cases they're calling every day, they're going down to the office. And yet in, in the case, and we'll talk about this in the case of Henny Scott, her mom said she filed a missing persons report 
and was not taken seriously. She said the missing persons report sat on a desk because the person in charge was out on vacation. They filed another missing persons report with the BIA, but still nothing. And then there was no communication at all from the FBI, who eventually got involved two weeks later. This is the same story we hear from family after family. Oh, yeah. You know, I can't tell you how many stories just off the top of my head is something similar of families trying to file a missing persons report, trying to, um, you know, do all of the necessary paperwork at the BIA or the, the, the tribal office, the tribal police department, police officers, and kind of running up again to, you know, that wall, that wall. And, you know, I think even particularly back to our cousin Monica, who was seven and um, we interviewed her mom of, of end of last year, and she was talking. She's like, "Yeah, you know, when I tried to file my missing persons report, where I'm like, hey, my daughter was literally taken off the playground in a strange car. There was witnesses, multiple witnesses. The police were like, oh, you know how young girls are. She might mm-hmm. be running around with her boyfriend. And this was a seven-year-old. And so, you know, that this, just to hear that these same things, you know, 40, 50 years later are happening to these families, where, yeah, you know, you you look at someone like when Henny's mom, Paula, tried to file her missing persons report. And in, 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 in my understanding and from what I've heard from the family is that, it, yeah, it sat on the desk of the person who was it was given to for three weeks and wasn't filed for three weeks. And by the time that the family was able to file it, Henny was found like mad in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a matter of hours, if not days after it was filed. And there's kind of that that legacy of, you know, again, that's another aspect of this crisis where sometimes you just feel like you're like, do people even care? You know, do people even even care about these women when they go missing? Because, you know, that it, it just seems like these institutions that are there to protect us don't. Right. To think that... Uh, uh... An official would say a seven-year-old is just going off with boys. But but this is what you hear over and over again. Well, she was drunk. Well, exactly. she was out late at night. Well, why aren't the parents taking more responsibility? I mean, you hear the same story also from the officials. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, I'm thinking of a case, too, that happened in Bighorn, which wasn't in the series, but the family we've worked with. And, yeah, you know, that was the whole thing, like... Her mom was like, I know something happened to my daughter. I can feel it. And then the police, the, the police were like in the aspect or were essentially like, well, you know how your daughter is. She'll probably come back after she's done partying. And her daughter was found frozen to death um, mm. in, in the mountain or on, on, at the base of the mountain. So it's like, you know, it's kind of that. It's just that culture of just, I don't even know what you'd call it. I mean, you know, I don't even know what you would call it, but <clears throat> it's kind of a, a culture of, of a culture of just, you know, not being cared for. Right. It, it was also so tragic to learn that in many cases, the official cause of death is hypothermia. Now, as you said, found frozen to death, Montana is a very cold place. And and so let's just talk about this for, for a few minutes T- to specifically, we won't go into all the detail because I really hope you can see the, the docu-series uh, Murder in Bighorn. But in December of 2018, the body of 14-year-old Henny Scott was found in the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. And again, the family put up missing person flyers, still nothing. They had to do their own investigation. They searched for her body near the home where she was last seen. Um, The body was found about 150 yards from the house. Her mom said when she was found, she wasn't wearing her clothes. She was wearing someone else's clothes. Her nose even looked broken, according to her family. She had bruises and scratches. There was something on the back of her neck. And yet the medical examiner said that she died of hypothermia. And the family said, well, what explains the broken nose and the bruises on her body? But we learn in the docuseries that the cause of death for so many of these women and girls is hypothermia. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's either hypothermia, exposure. I mean, again, you know, to reference our cousin Monica's case. So essentially, yeah, you know, she was kidnapped. There's multiple witnesses to this. She was kidnapped. She was left on a a similar case where she was left on a mountain in the middle of winter. You know, it was a few, few weeks before Christmas during a blizzard and was found frozen face first to a mountain, but the cause of her death was exposure. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, exposure is kind of always the, 
you know, I think of it, I think of the idea of using exposure as death. It it ignores any preceding factors that may have led to that incidence of exposure, or why a young girl would be out, you know, be out in the in a in a winter in a you know in a, in a storm. Why she would be out in a storm? It kind of takes off. It, it it ignores all of these preceding factors and the factors that might come after it, which kind of show you know like there's these aspects of, you know, I've always referred to it as like manslaughter, where okay, this person may not have essentially caused, this person may have not essentially killed them in cold murder, but they they're the factors or the actions that they did ultimately led to this person's demise. And, you know, I always think of when, when coroners or, you know, ex- medical examiners um, list a cause of death for these girls and women as exposure, it's kind of this, this thing like, okay, you know, this, this is where we're going. We're not going to investigate beyond this. We're not going to go in depth on the case, case beyond this. They don't look at any of the preceding factors where, you know, as soon as the, that exposure or that, um, that designation of exposure or hypothermia is is put on the, the death certificate. It's like, okay, our hands are clean. We don't have to investigate this beyond that. But it's like it's like, no, so many of these actions that took place before this this young girl's demise, that is poss- that is probably the cause of her death. And I think Mary Catherine in the series goes into that aspect where, you know, once kind of that designation of exposure or hypothermia is made, it's, they kind of wash their hands of hands of the case. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's the family. It then comes on to the families to kind of search for justice beyond that. We're like, no, we know these aspects of, we know the aspects of what led up to this. You know, we know the aspects of what, what actions happened right before, which caused these, these, these deaths. And so, you know, none of that stuff is kind of prosecuted beyond. And, you know, I think it's just, you know, off the top of my head, you know, I can think of at least 80% of the cases, it's some sort of designation of exposure or hypothermia. Wow. Well, and in the case of 14 year old Henny Scott, the family still has no idea what happened to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? yeah. They've been searching for answers and, you know, it's just, it's, 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 yeah, it's like, you know, one of the big reasons that the Department of Justice, again, you know, declines to investigate these, these cases is a lack of evidence. And you think like, okay, you know, you're still looking for justice for these, these young women years after it's like, of course, there's, there's not going to be any evidence beyond that, because evidence is so time sensitive and degrades so quickly over time, where it's like, okay, you know, given given any amount of time, you know, just a matter of hours to days, it's like, yeah, all as evidence is kind of gone. And then so, you know, now, now, now that all evidence is gone, there's no need to process, there's no need to investigate any further. Let's just put this, let's just put this young girl down as hypothermia and call it a day. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of that, it's kind of that aspect. And that's really what it feels like in a lot of these communities. Today, we're speaking with Ivan McDonald, one of the producers of Murder in Bighorn, a new three-part docuseries on Showtime featuring stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Montana. It is available for streaming right now, and you can find more information at yourcallradio.org. There's so much from every case that you featured on. Um, Let's just talk quickly about what happened to K. Sarah Stops Pretty Places. In late August of 2019, a man passed her body. It was found by a jogger off the reservation on a busy street in Hardin, a majority, majority white city in Montana. And for K. Sarah Stops Pretty Places, the cause of death is undetermined, but attorney Mary Catherine Nagel said her cell phone was found on her body and authorities did not do what they should do with that evidence. I mean, even the fact that they're not doing the right thing when a cell phone is found on a body. Yeah, you know, again, you know, I I can think of so many cases where instances of mishandling of evidence, mishandling of material possessions, such as that, like you have said, you know, like I'm thinking of another case that happened to Bighorn, where um, the coroner, the state, the state pathologist ended up burning, burning the clothes of this young woman, you know, when her body was being examined. And it's like, okay, well, what happened to all of that? Like, nobody, nobody, the police, no one requested that. Why, why is that happening? And, you know, thinking, thinking back to our cousin, Ashley, Ashley Heavy Runner, a sweater was found, which 
exactly match the sweater that she was last seen in. And it sat in some BIA evidence room for almost a year until Ashley's sister, Kimberly, testified on, you know, Capitol Hill of being like, you know, my sister evidence was found that they, 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 we never knew what they did with it after. And, you know, the BIA, a few hours after that interview, were like, oh, yeah, no, we found the evidence here. And so, you know, that's just like that, that kind of stuff happens too, where even if there is any evidence, it isn't really investigated investigated or whatever they do with it beyond that and so it's like geez you know what where are all of these gaps happening these these gaps of justice and you think of someone like Kaysera where there's so much so much kind of evidence leading to foul play being her cause of death but none of there's no one smoking gun that kind of points exactly to that because you know again you know that there is really no evidence in the minds of these of these law enforcement in the case of Kaysera Stops Pretty Places, her family said they went to the police department. They were not taken seriously. They were not even asked to fill out a form. And then five days after she went missing, her family got a message about her body being found. And, and this one is also just so brutal, Ivan, to learn that Terry Bullis, the only coroner in town, a non-native white man who owns a funeral home in Bighorn County, cremated her body and the family says he cremated her body against their wishes crow people do not believe in cremation yeah yeah you know exactly like a lot of the tribes in montana cremation isn't isn't really a thing and it's not something that that we do for you know our our loved ones when they pass and you know that's kind of a, a history and a pattern of that that kind of nefarious actions that sadly terry bulis has participated in um and you know that's just that's just kind of what happens in in this area let's talk about what happened when the media major media finally started to cover this epidemic in in the case of Selena Not Afraid, um, a 16-year-old last seen at the Interstate 90 rest area on January 1st, 2020, according to witnesses, the vehicle she was in broke down. They stopped at the rest stop. Selena walked into a field. And then once word got out, her father called the sheriff of Bighorn County and said, my daughter was apparently left behind at the rest area and they cannot find her. He contacted deputies and they moved within hours. Uh, Luella Byrne, the former journalist with Bighorn County News, said this was the first time there was a frenzy. Helicopters, horses, drones, people on the ground. She said, I've never seen a reaction like that. International media covered it and CNN showed up to do a report. Can you talk about how this was a turning point in terms of media coverage of these issues? Yeah, yeah. You know, thinking of Selena's case, I mean, it was on the front page of the New York Times, her story. And, you know, I think her her case in some aspects, and I think her family really talks about it beautifully. Um, her case was kind of this watershed of, I guess, exposure, exposure to this crisis. You know, the fact that this young Indigenous woman in, in, who went missing in Bighorn County, her story is now on the front page of the New York Times. And, you know, as much as it's a power, it's a story of the power of media, I think it's a story of the power of families and them seeking out justice. You know, a lot of these, these um, reach out, to, reaching out to these news and media agencies was through the family and particularly the, the, the her aunt that's in the series, Cheryl Horn, who's just been this amazing advocate for families in Montana. Um, largely, largely from the experience she got from dealing with the crisis of or dealing with the death of her of her niece, and so you know, using this tool of media has been, I think, an incredible, incredible tool in Indian country to kind of expose, expose, um, expose kind of not just the aspects of this crisis, but kind of expose the aspects of the the injustice that we face. And you know, in a lot of the work that Ivy and I have done, you know, we always tell families, you know, beyond sharing your stories, that's kind of where our wheelhouse is, but that, that there, we've heard from families that there is some form of justice and having your loved one's story known and kind of out, out in the, out in the world. Right. And, and what's so hard about this is, and we've done shows about this with black families. So much of the pressure is on these families. I'm gosh, I keep thinking about Tyree Nichols mom and how this woman had to go out and talk to major media over and over again. The funeral was public because she wanted to find out what happened to her son. 
And the same thing is happening with these with Native families. In the case of Selena Not Afraid, her aunt Cheryl Horn said, I'm not going to stop every day on Facebook. I am writing about my niece and I am reminding people what happened because as soon as they start scrolling, she's forgotten. And that's how it works. Exactly. And I think exactly what Cheryl said, you know, there was the there was the snide comment that one guy made of, you know, oh, people in the family is using it to make themselves famous. But, you know, that's the last thing Cheryl has done with with her exposure. You know, she's she's talked about other families. She's uplifted other families. So it's kind of this power of, you know, and I think that's something Ivy and I have talked about once kind of the eyes are on you and your work. How are you uplifting the rest of the people around you and the people who have kind of helped you up to this point? And, you know, I think that's what we've what we've tried to have done with this series is, you know, pull in these families who have kind of, you know, exactly what Cheryl said. You know, once you kind of scroll beyond the missing persons flyer of one person, what is kind of the what is what is what are the next steps? And so it's kind of reminding people of what can you do kind of kind of beyond that. And, you know, I think that a lot of the times it falls on these families to kind of keep their loved ones memory alive and kind of their search for justice, because I know families who you know, 20 plus years, they haven't stopped talking about their loved ones. And well, you know, they've never been able to solve the case. Mm-hmm. There's some aspect of, of their of their legacy of their life that goes on. And I think that's something that Cheryl talks about beautifully in the series, you know, with Selena and kind of the legacy of, of sharing her story. You know, maybe there is some power in her Selena being this beacon of this beacon of hope, you know, for, for some of these, for some of these families of, you know, just the exposure that her case got and kind of the, the continuous focus on it. And once again, the official cause of death of Selena, not afraid, a 16 year old girl. Once again, it was hypothermia. Ivan, in our remaining minutes, let's talk about where we are right now, because the journalist Luella Byrne says, you know, like you just said, thanks to the family's decades-long efforts, the movement to raise awareness about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls became mainstream. She says, but what has come of it? She says, no one has answers. Still, we are still asking basic questions, and we're not getting answers. Yeah. You know, I think that's kind of uh, kind of a reflection that I think a lot of us have had over the last few years of like, okay, you know, there's been exposure to these cases, there's been, um, you know, eyes, there's, you know, particularly with something like Murder and Bitcoin, there's this first big telling of this, of this, of this crisis and this platform. Um, going incredibly in depth in the stories, but it's like, okay, you know, well, what is beyond that? How do we kind of create this, 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 this change beyond that? And I think that's a lot of what what some of us have been, some of us been grappling with. And you know, with with regards to me, it's like you know, I kind of realize that as much work as I put into this crisis, I won't be able to solve it on my own. So I work with, um, you know, I work with this organization called the Snowbird Fund, which provides. Um, we've been able to provide over $30,000 to Indigenous families here in Montana, um, MMIP, Missing and Murdered Indigenous People, um, families who are searching for their loved one and actively searching for missing people in the communities. And so you'd think, you know, you have to, I think for Ivy and I, we kind of have to, we've, we've kind of have pulled back and been like, okay, well, where are, where are most of our efforts where can we target most of our efforts to get the most impact? And I think supporting that boots on the ground, grassroots support of families, but you know, it's still, there's still legislative bills coming down just from the national level to state to tribal level. And it's like, you know, I think that once we full, full have a full grip on the, um, cause you know, I think that each thing kind of feels a little bit, little bit piecemeal, like legislation here, supporting families, there, advocating, activism on one hand but it's like you know until we kind of pull all of these threads together it kind of feels like silos at times and you know i think that as much as as much as great work that has happened in the last few years there's that much beyond that's going to be need need to be done you know i always remind people i'm like you know this this ongoing project of colonization has been going on for 400 years and you know, as much as we have to do undo this 400 years of work, it's like you look into the future, um, you know, for future generations and you kind of think of, okay, the seeds we're putting in now, hopefully they'll have some impact and change in the future. Mm-hmm. 
We're almost out of time, but I wonder, has this film been screened to non-Native audiences in Bighorn County? Yeah, you know, that's actually something we're working on. I don't know if necessarily Bighorn County, but I think we have been working, putting in logistics for a community-based screening, where that will include the families, include advocates of a way to kind of try to give back to the community. And, and you know, I, I, I hope that, you know, people who need to see the series will to kind of change attitudes. Because, you know, as, as someone who's been work doing, you know, all Indigenous advocacy over the last 10 years or so in my life, I think education is kind of the starting point and education and, and awareness and building in building in this worldview that if you're a non-Indigenous person, you may just not understand. And so, you know, I think that um, as much as this this series can hopefully educate and, and change minds, I hope it can kind of change change environments for people. And, you know, you think of something like a, a small community in Bighorn, if they're kind of exposed to this Hopefully that can change some of the dynamic in the community. Well, Ivan, you and your team did an incredible job with this docu-series. I hope it is seen by so many people, and I hope you get a lot of media attention. Huge thanks for your great work. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Ivan McDonald is one of the producers of Murder in Bighorn, a three-part docu-series on Showtime featuring stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Montana. It is streaming now. You can find information. In fact, if you don't have Showtime, you can sign up for a free trial and watch this series. It's about three hours altogether. And of course, we should say this is happening across the country. It's happening right here in California. It doesn't get that much attention. But up north, um, there have been a lot of stories about murdered and missing indigenous women and girls. National Geographic had a great piece. Um, so we're definitely going to do going to do more shows about this in the near future. Thanks to BSOL for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. And thank you so much for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call. 